This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Shinto and Japanese New Religions by Byron Earhart. It's topically fitting with what we're covering right now, and as a bonus, it's narrated by Gandhi himself, Sir Ben Kingsley. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 86, The Way of the Gods, part 2. This week, we're picking up our narrative on the history of Shinto right where we left it off, at the time of the Meiji Restoration. The victory of the Restoration Coalition and the ascent of the Emperor to political power was, in theory, a pretty big win for Japan's native religion, which of course was only debatably a religion at this point. Since Shinto was tied directly to the imperial family, and in theory the whole idea of restoring power to the emperor came about because, according to the more hardline Shinto ideologues out there, he was the only one who could legitimately rule Japan, it seemed like Shinto was perfectly positioned to become the new state religion. This seemed all the more likely because Buddhism, its only real competitor, was as a political force discredited because of its association with the Tokugawa. Since the Buddhist establishment had been so closely tied to the shogunate for so long, in particular handling what amounted to the national census, the new government was deeply suspicious of devout Buddhists. So one of the first acts of the new government was to simultaneously attack Buddhism and uplift Shinto. A law on the separation of Buddha and Kami was passed, decreeing that Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines must be split up, and officially denouncing the old Honji Suijaku theory that Shinto was but a reflection of the greater truth of Buddhism. This law also removed the old system of forced support for Buddhist temples. In some areas, more extreme measures were taken. Rather than the official stance of Shinbutsubunri, or the splitting up of Buddha and Kami, some began to take up the cry, Haibutsukishaku, abolish Buddhism and destroy Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni being the person most Westerners know simply as the Buddha. In some districts, temples were raised and their treasures looted, and many a monk was forced to either become a Shinto priest or leave the religious profession altogether. What motivated this campaign to destroy Buddhism is not totally clear to me. It was not government policy for reasons we're going to explore in a little bit. There do seem to be a few unifying factors, however. First, the Buddhist establishment did really well out of the Tokugawa period, and as a result many temples were pretty well off. This created a sense of resentment towards the priesthood somewhat analogous to the anti-clericalism of the French Revolution. The priesthood had been corrupted by worldly materialism and lost its divine status, 
and as such it was now open season on them and their possessions. Second, and related, many local governments were in pretty bad fiscal straits after the restoration, and the opportunity to confiscate some land and property from the temples provided an incentive for local officials to either participate or look the other way. Third, many of the physically wealthiest sects of Buddhism, such as Tendai, were esoteric ones with which relied heavily on ritual objects as part of worship. These ritual objects were provided in exquisite style by the rich, and who among the little people does not love to stick it to the rich? The government, for its part, eventually stepped in to quell the chaos and cancel the order of separation. After all this rioting and temple burning became too much bad PR for them, to this day there remains some mixing of shrines and temples, though it's nowhere near as common as it used to be. So now the old Tokugawa religious establishment was definitely broken, but what did the Meiji government raise up in its place? Their response to that question was a resounding, we're still figuring that one out. The government did begin promoting a campaign with the rather unwieldy name the Great Promulgation Campaign of the Three Great Teachings, one of the more interesting of the Japanese religious movements. You see, in theory, anyone could become an evangelist of the Three Great Teachings. Shinto priest, Buddhist monks, religious hermits, entertainers, anyone who knew how to work a crowd. The priests of the campaign were graded into 14 ranks and trained to spread the Three Great Teachings. Respect for the gods and love of country, making clear the principles of heaven and the way of man, and reverence for and obedience to the imperial court. You'll notice that the first two are incredibly vague, and only the last one has something approaching substance. The idea of this campaign was to transcend all religious sects and teachings into a single unified doctrine which could be promoted as a sort of national religion. By getting to the core truths of religion, so it was thought, the three great teachings could bring Japanese of all beliefs together in one big old religious happy family. That was the idea, anyway. The practice proved to be a complete disaster. First, while in theory the movement was non-denominational, in practice it was very much informed by Shinto ritual. Evangelists of the three great teachings dressed in the robes of Shinto priests, very often shut up on the grounds of Shinto shrines, and in fact redecorated the temples they did work in to look more like Shinto shrines, and were instructed to use objects of Shinto veneration in their teaching, for example mirrors, which are commonly used as the physical home of a kami within a shrine. This, combined with the fact that the teachings were so vague that no one could agree on what they meant, just what the hell is the way of man anyway, meant that the evangelists for this great campaign of national harmony spent more time fighting each other than anything else. As a result, the campaign became something of a joke, with government bureaucrats referring to the ministry responsible for promoting the three great teachings as the Ministry of Naps, since everyone slacked off and nothing got done. And so the campaign was wound down and eventually suspended in 1885. The benefits simply did not match the cost. Not the most auspicious start to the government's involvement in religion, though the three great teachings are often looked at as the predecessors of the system of state Shinto we'll be talking about in a bit. Now, as we've just said, part of the problem was that the teachings were so vague no one knew what they meant. 
The reason that was so was because the Shinto establishment itself couldn't agree on what their religion should be in this new age. Some priests wanted to take the opportunity presented by the fall of Buddhism to restore a purer form of Shinto. This is the movement called Koshinto, or Old Shinto, I referred to briefly in the first episode. The goal of the movement was to use Western techniques of anthropology and textual analysis to attempt to restore Shinto to something like what it had been before the arrival of Buddhism. Again, like I said last time, the methodology was questionable at best. It involved looking at Ainu and Okinawan native religions as purer forms of Shinto, and to reconstruct Old Shinto by comparing these religions with old texts like the Kojiki. Still others wanted to embrace a new religious influence, Christianity. By combining the best of both, it was felt a new religious synthesis for a new age could carry Japan towards a new and brighter future. In addition to these forward and backward-looking views, a sizable group simply wanted to keep things working the way they had been. In the meantime, the government began putting a new spin on its religious policies, which would prove something of a roadblock for the future of Shinto's union with the state. You see, the overriding and constant concern of the Meiji leadership was always to secure their country's position as a civilized nation, and thus obtain the revision of the unequal treaties imposed by the Western powers. In the 19th century, and arguably today as well, one of the requirements of a civilized country was the recognition of the freedom of religion, for reasons that we don't really have time to get into but involve a lot of European history, which is very interesting. The freedom to believe whatever religion you chose has become one of the touchstones of Western civilization. In Japan, however, this presented something of a problem, since A, in general, the leadership wasn't super keen on letting anyone believe what they wanted, and some among them were pretty invested in what could generously be called campaigns to improve public morality, and what the more cynical would call brainwashing, and B, in particular, owing to an inherited bias from the Tokugawa and a belief in its incompatibility with nationalism, they were not super keen on letting Christians in particular believe whatever they wanted. Still, the treaties had to get revised, so freedom of religion was going to have to happen. And happen it did. The freedom of religion was guaranteed early on by the Meiji government, and eventually codified in the new constitution, which came into force in 1889. At least it was codified within the limits provided by the law, which is not quite the same thing as the unqualified freedom of religion in, say, the United States or Western Europe. This in turn meant that Japan could not technically have a state religion, since doing so would involve violating the guarantee written into its own constitution that citizens could believe what they chose. In fact, this was one of the reasons, though certainly not the only one, that the Great Promulgation Campaign was shut down, since it was eventually decided that the government promoting any kind of national creed was inappropriate. That, within the limits provided by the law, did give them some wiggle room. For example, the government did shut down attempts to found a shrine dedicated to the soul of Saigo Takamori. Still, this was far from absolute power over religion. There was one exception to the hands-off approach. The shrine first called the Shokonsha, founded in 1869 as the repository of the souls of those who had died in the war against the Tokugawa. That shrine would eventually be renamed in 1879 to the name it is currently and infamously known by, 
the Shrine of National Serenity, or Yasukuni Shrine. Eventually, it became practice to enshrine the souls of everyone who died serving in the Imperial military in Yasukuni, where they could be honored by the nation for their service, and serve as guardian deities for the country. Yasukuni was very overtly a religious institution. It had its own priesthood, for example. But the government justified its support by pointing to examples like, say, Arlington National Cemetery, which, being a cemetery, does have something of religious connotation, though it's not quite a perfect analogy. The government also took charge of shrines related to the imperial family in some way, like Ise Shrine. The vast majority of shrines, however, they were pretty hands-off with. In the 1880s, there was an attempt to reorganize them as part of a broader campaign of administrative reorganization, cutting down the number of villages in Japan and cutting down the number of shrines so each village had one shrine. The village reorganization went off without a hitch. The shrine reorganization was resisted on pretty much every level. Bureaucrats sent to oversee it were beat up. Police sent to disassemble old shrines found that the sacred items in those shrines had mysteriously disappeared, and the whole campaign just turned into an overall disaster. Now, at this point, it's important that we stop and take stock of where we're at. Last time, if you'll recall, I laid out three levels of Shinto in the Tokugawa era. The first, shrines directly connected with the imperial family. Second, the national network of main and branch shrines for particularly important gods. And finally, the local shrines. By the 1890s, there's really only been one big change. The top layer of shrines became the responsibility of the government, which managed all shrines connected with the imperial family and occasionally built new ones. For example, Heian Shrine in Kyoto, built in 1894 to mark the 1,100-year anniversary of the city's founding. So, while the government only directly administered this fairly small pool of shrines, it did have some relationship with the others. A shrine bureau, or Jinjakoku, was set up in 1900 to manage the relationship between the central government and the various Shinto shrines in the country. Another separate division existed to handle relations with non-Shinto religious groups. However, probably the biggest change in the Meiji period was not really the relationship between the Shinto religion and the state, but changes in Shinto rituals themselves. You see, prior to the Meiji period, Shinto observances had really been fixed, there was no hard and fast set of rules for this is what you do for a wedding, or this is what you do for a funeral. Indeed, like as not, any such life offense would be commemorated at a Buddhist temple during the Tokugawa period, simply because it made changing the associated family registers much easier. After all, they're kept right in the temple. Now, however, Shinto had to fill all of these religious roles. As a result, many of the traditional life cycle ceremonies we associate with modern Shinto were invented in this period. There is probably no better example than the Shinto wedding. Marriage prior to the Meiji period had generally been the domain of the Buddhist establishment, but now Shinto needed its own marriage ceremony. The final form of the ritual was set in 1900, when it was used for the wedding of the crown prince Yoshihito, the future emperor Taisho, to his wife Empress Teimei. Their wedding ceremony set the pattern for how future Shinto weddings would be handled, after all, who would know how to get married in the sight of the kami better than one of their descendants? To this day, if you go to a Shinto wedding, the pattern it follows is the one set by that wedding in 1900. The ritual calendar was also rationalized and regularized. 
You see, like we discussed in the episodes on Christmas and New Year's, religious holidays in Japan had previously been based off the Chinese lunar calendar. Now, however, the religious calendar was reworked to operate off the Western solar calendar. So, for example, the festival known as Tanabata, celebrating the mythical reunion of two separated lovers, is now always celebrated in Japan on July 7th. In China, it's still the seventh day of the seventh lunar month, usually sometime in mid to late August. It wasn't really until the 20th century, however, when the government began looking to mobilize Shinto for its own purposes. By that point, ironically, the religions themselves were interested in being mobilized. You see, by the 20th century, three trends had established themselves in the Japanese religious sphere. First, within the Shinto priesthood, the middle ground priests who simply wanted to keep things the way they had been won out in the doctrinal debate between Shinto and the Christian syncretists, those who wanted to combine Shinto with Western influence. This had always been the most likely outcome, staying the same is always easier than changing, and by the 20th century enough priests had been convinced of the folly of large-scale religious tampering that any changes were looking unlikely. Second was the rise of the so-called new religions, many of them outgrowths of the early Christian syncretists. We talked about this a bit in the episode on Am Shinrikyo. For a quick refresher, these religions were essentially philosophical blends of Eastern and Western spiritual traditions, borrowing a bit from Christianity, a bit from Shinto, a bit from Buddhism, and so on, as necessary to create a new spirituality for the 20th century. Once it became clear they weren't really going to be able to influence the entire Shinto establishment, these priests fragmented away from Shinto and broke off into smaller sects. They carried a lot of Shinto influence, many of them still worshipped kami, for example, but were not a part of traditional Shinto proper. Now, not to be too crass about it, but religion, in some ways, is like any other business. No one likes competitors. The new religions pulled people away from traditional Buddhist and Shinto organizations, and the perception among many a shrine priest was that they were being undercut by these new upstart religions. That sense of being undercut will come back for us in a big way later in this episode. Third, after the war, a political scientist named Maruyama Masao, arguably one of the most important political thinkers in modern Japanese history, took it upon himself to explain the rise of Japanese ultranationalism and fascism. He tried to find the social classes which had supported fascism in Japan, and came away with the intriguing answer that it was the lower middle classes which provided much of the impetus behind fascism in Japan. Shrine priests, who were well-off but not super-educated or wealthy, lie right in the middle of the lower middle class, and Maruyama in fact explicitly named them as tending to support fascism. There are a couple of reasons for why this might be, but probably the best explanation comes from a mix of perceived high-mindedness and self-interest. In the first case, by the early 20th century, the people running shrines had grown up with propaganda about the emperor being a central figure in Japan and Shinto being what gave him legitimacy. As a result, many of them tended to view their work in a nationalist light. They were guardians of a sacred tradition that helped preserve Japan's glorious imperial throne. In the second case, shrine maintenance is frankly expensive, and if shrines could get a more prominent place in the public eye, maybe government support for all shrines, not just the ones connected with the imperial family, would be forthcoming. So, shrine priests began moving Shinto into the public light. 
Many were aided in this by dint of a rather unusual part of Meiji teaching policy, by which anyone holding the rank of shrine priest or above was considered automatically qualified to teach primary school. As such, ultranationalist priests were able to mold impressionable young children into believers from a pretty young age. Priests were also able to leverage this position to make attendance at certain shrines mandatory for students as well. They also turned their considerable authority on dissenters, the best example being Uchimura Kanzo. Uchimura Kanzo, if you'll remember, was a teacher at Tokyo Ichiko who was hounded out of his job for his failure to show proper veneration for the imperial rescript on education. Influenced by his Christian beliefs, he had failed to bow to the document as was expected. Uchimura was hounded out of his job, not by government officials, but by public intellectuals, including priests. Priests also began advocating for the government to crack down on new religions, on the grounds that they undermine public morality. For example, they pushed for years for the state to eradicate the new religion known as Omotokyo, the teaching of the Great Origin. I bring this up because, after the war, a lot of Shinto priests used the defense of, well, we were just doing what the angry men with guns told us to do. But that's not strictly true. A lot of these priests, though certainly not all of them, pushed for the government to become more involved in religion rather than the other way around, because they saw it as a way to gain influence they would not otherwise have had. Now, it's worth stopping for a second and asking just how did all of this jive with the whole separation of church and state issue I brought up a few minutes ago. Well, this is where the whole issue of whether or not Shinto was a religion reared its head in a big way. Most priests argued that it was not, and thus that the separation of church and state did not apply. Specifically, they argued that Shinto was a Japanese folk and political tradition, and that Shinto rites were essentially the equivalent of the Pledge of Allegiance in the U.S. They weren't really about the gods, but about demonstrating political loyalty to the Japanese state. This is, of course, a line of argument that ignores a lot of the fundamental aspects of Shinto, but you should never let the facts get in the way of a good argument. Throughout the 1910s and 1920s, Shinto priests put pressure on the government to take a more active role in promoting Shinto, using that type of reasoning. They also pressured the government to suppress the new religions. However, it was not until after the Manchurian incident that such pleas fell on receptive ears. After the collapse of the political parties in 1931, control of the nation was seized by a coalition of reform-minded, and generally fascist-inclined, bureaucrats and military men. They were very receptive to the idea of using Shinto as an ideology to mobilize Japan for war against its enemies, so it was at this point that government support for Shinto really stepped up, and that suppression of the new religions went into full swing. Omotokyo, for example, was harshly suppressed in a series of incidents, culminating in their headquarters being totally destroyed. Shrine visits were made mandatory, as was veneration of Issei Shrine, home of the sun goddess from whom the emperor was supposedly descended, as well as Yasukuni Shrine. In particular, mass rallies at Yasukuni became increasingly common as the war in China went on and the war against the West began. Eventually, all shrines were nationalized and given government support, and priests were instructed to begin promoting the idea that Shinto observance was a requirement for patriotic Japanese. This was what we later came to call State Shinto. 
Now, all of this is probably pretty confusing, and for good reason. The relationship between Shinto and the government was pretty ambiguous until the issue was finally settled in the 1930s. Everything is further confused by the label State Shinto itself, which was not used until the Allied occupation beginning in 1945. The goal of the Allies was to destroy State Shinto, which they defined as any manifestation of that religion which supported ultranationalism and militarism. Except, of course, all shrines were mobilized for that purpose, but you can't really get rid of Shinto altogether because what about the freedom of religion? Aren't these kind of values what we fought the whole war for in the first place? The ambiguity about what's state Shinto versus what's just Shinto was the source of many of the disputes over the nature of the religion in post-war Japan, and in particular thorny issues about the relationship between the people and the emperor, and between the government and shrines, especially Yasukuni. We'll get into those next week. So, in the meantime, if there's one takeaway from this episode, let it be this. During the imperial period, state Shinto was not some monolithic and totalitarian construct, where the government forced the religious community to do its bidding. Many Shinto leaders volunteered themselves for government intervention in the name of obtaining support and suppressing competitors. State Shinto, if we still want to even use that term, was not enforced at gunpoint, but represented a deal with the devil for the Shinto establishment. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the third and final part of The Way of the Gods.